The content of this podcast, Swingin' It, is for informational and entertainment purposes only. The content discussed is not intended for investment advice nor a recommendation. Investing in any stock, security, bond, ETF, option contracts, or futures has substantial risk of loss. Chris McBride and John Burrell are not certified financial or investment advisors, nor are they registered brokers. By listening to this podcast, you acknowledge that neither Chris McBride or John Burrell will be held responsible for any loss that you may occur from acting on the topic or discussion in this podcast. These topics are not meant for recommendation. Chris McBride and John Burrell may hold positions in securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to another edition of the Just Swing It podcast. I'm Chris. I'm joined by Fat Baby Funds and John, as per normal. Um, it's another good week if you're John, and I'm sure he's going to let us know about it. Um, the market's down, of course, after you know the day off yesterday, President's Day. Um, there's there's quite a bit of news going on, and um, we'll get to all that. I don't expect this to be a super long show, but we say that a lot and then it ends up being. So we'll see how it goes. Uh, how are you guys doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Just staying busy, just working, all that kind of fun stuff. And that's it. That's about it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of getting super busy because I take um, – my like big engineering test is in in May, so I'm kind of at the point where I have to basically start studying for that every single day until till May second. But once I take that, that's kind of it for my my testing for a while, I guess. But it'll be a big deal, and once I pass that, I think I get a pretty a pretty substantial um, pay raise. Hell yeah, man! That sounds good. What about you, John? What have you been up to? I just um just working. Um got up early today and went to work. Uh got my work done, got off early, came home, um, went to the gym, played some basketball, had my shot on fire today, so that's always good. Uh hit the game winner to leave the gym on, so that's always a good note. So um I'm looking to relax here this evening and talk some stocks a little bit and and I guess do it all again tomorrow. Yeah, so, sounds good. Um, so with that, I guess we'll just hop right in. Uh, Fat Baby, what are we learning about tonight? So tonight I was going to talk about, uh, is, is sort of start a series on unit economics and talking about uh, the first of the unit economics, which is the most important is, um, well, there's a lot of important portions to it, but I was going to talk about customer acquisition costs and really what that means. Uh, and unit economics, just a high level is just the idea of the per unit items in a business. How, how does it factor 
um, overall and like on the lifetime value of a customer. And it's a quick way to look at a business and sort of decide, is this a viable business or not? Because a lot of times what can happen in businesses is they're uh, gaining customers is very valuable. And these companies will spend crazy amounts of money to gain customers because they think over the life of that customer, they're going to make money. So they pay a bunch of money up front in advertising and bonuses or whatever. So people come join that company. And it's sometimes hard to tell whether those kind of strategies work. Uh, a key example that we could talk about is any of the gambling companies. You see some crazy offers that all these gambling companies are doing where they offer you $100. They give you crazy odds of 50 to one or something like that. Um, they're offering you all this money and that's really their customer acquisition cost. The, the marketing, the bonus, all that kind of stuff. Um, that customer acquisition cost is what they have to pay to essentially gain your business. And then from there, it's okay, we spent all this money, DraftKings offered me $100 to join. Uh, then from there, does DraftKings make that money back? So looking at businesses through this lens is definitely helpful. And the, the, the portion of it I want to talk about today is the customer acquisition cost, just because I've been seeing some some businesses do some crazy things. Specifically, a lot of the gambling companies are doing crazy things right now with customer acquisition costs where they're offering you $500. They're offering you crazy amounts where I saw one guy uh, just made a trip to New York and was able to pay for his whole trip just based off of uh, the online gambling um, money that was essentially given to him. He was able to play for, for his flights, hotels, um, you can clear $2,000 across four or five different companies right now in New York. So it's pretty crazy. And really what it is, is just the, the unit economics of it is the customer acquisition cost is how much are you going to pay up front to gain that customer? And it's usually through marketing, branding expenses. And then in the, in the gambling world, it's a lot of these sign-up bonuses that they're handing out to everyone. Uh, so it's definitely something to watch for, something you'll see in DraftKings stock. Uh, other stocks like Penn, for instance, they their a customer acquisition cost will be a lot lower because they don't need to spend as much money on marketing because they have Portnoy. Um, so you'll see sometimes that going on as well. So it's interesting to watch that overall. But I wanted to just quickly talk on customer acquisition costs. And in the future, I'll dive into some of the other aspects like long-term value, um, uh, a churn, a lot of different other aspects. And I can talk about different businesses and how they apply to it. Yep. Sounds good. I mean, that's a perfect um, um, lead in. One of the big things um, we were going to talk about, of course, was uh, DraftKings because it's been getting kicked around. And I'm pretty sure after the earnings the other day, pretty much every single analyst across the board um, downgraded them. So, um, yeah, so I think that'll be an interesting um, series, but, and I I was going to say this later, but I mean, it fits in right now, so we might as well, you know, go ahead and talk about the, the gambling stocks. And, and like you said, that maybe most of them have ridiculous media ad spend and these customer acquisition costs. You, you were particularly talking about the sign-up promotions. Um, I would have to look at the breakdown to see how much that actually costs. I think in the long run, those are actually paying. Um, I would say those in particular are actually making 
I think they're going to make that back mostly right away. Um, the, the idea behind some of those are, you know, if we give you this money, you're, you're going to use it to, to bet. And then most people are not smart enough to, to win bets. So they end up just giving the money directly um, back. Now, like your friend and like myself, um, you know, if you do it correctly, you can gain quite a bit of money. They did that in Virginia when it first opened. Um, one thing I'll say about them is they're, like you said, they're, they're sign-up bonuses. So it's like a one-time, you know, like a one-time deal on, on those. And, and some of the big ones, um, I don't know which one. One of them has like a, their sign-up bonus is like you get a $1,000 risk-free bet or whatever. Once you read in the fine print on a bunch of them, a lot of the bonuses in a lot of cases are returned. Um, not all cases, but in a lot of the cases are returned in action in site credit, which you have to play through again before you can get money. So like say that they give you $500 in site credit, you have to gamble through $500 before it's actual cash. But I mean, if you win with the $500, obviously it's, it's cash. But that, that one in particular, I know I rambled here a little bit. I, I think they, I would say they get most of that back right away just on the people who really don't know what they're doing. I would say most people get it, have no clue what they're doing and then use it to try to like learn what the things um, mean. So I, I would be interested in seeing the breakdown of what that actually ends up costing. But the, the big one, I think, especially when we're talking about DraftKings, is the ad spending is, like you said, is astronomically high. And you, you mentioned the two there that are complete opposites. DraftKings, their business motto or, or their plan um, was basically let's get as much marketing and much as much partnerships and a much and you know spend all this money on ads up front and hoping to become the biggest name, the most popular name. So in the, the back end, they can recoup that money because they're the most popular, they had the most users. And then you talked about PIN, which their um, business plan was, we're just going to buy a media company, which they bought Barstool, which is way more than Dave, Dave Portnoy at this point. I mean, some of, the, some of the shows they have are the biggest in that sector. Um, now, PIN's a casino company, so it, Barstool makes very little as far as the bottom line compared to the actual brick and mortar casinos. Um, but it does make something, but what it really does is it eliminates completely pretty much all of the advertising um, spending that, you know, FanDuel, DraftKings, some of these others are doing, as well as a lot of the barstool promotions are actually more merch based. So rather than just cash, it's like a, you know, bet this and you you get this if you win you get this hoodie and a lot of theirs are based on very specifically a you have to actually win the bet to get the the clothing or whatever um but it's also just like a hoodie um so theirs is pretty cheap but but on DraftKings, um obviously they reported earnings the other day they had a crazy amount of ad spending which led to a bunch of analysts downgrading you know, um, downgrading their price targets. The biggest one, I think, was Wealth, Wells Fargo dropped it from $41 to $19. 
the shoots had 27 to 19. Bank of America had like 30 to 25. And there's like a bunch more that like super downgraded. And a lot of them in their, I don't know what you would call the little, like their little description of why they felt like it should be cut was that they felt like they have spent so much money in ad deals. It's going to be such a long time, if ever, for them to dig themselves out of the hole, which personally is what I've been saying for the longest time that they're, I think FanDuel is kind of, they spent a lot of money too. Um, but I think they've, you know, they've spent less than DraftKings, but I think they're the ones where the ad spending will end up working a little bit. I think DraftKings is the one that's going to get left, um, left in the dust. And I've been saying that to begin with personally, that's the app I hate the, the most. I've used them all. I think it has the least amount of features you if you get online and Twitter, so if you see a lot about DraftKings, but in my opinion, that's solely because of the, you know, advertisement. That's the one that most people think of right away. And that's the one that's blasted all over the TV and stuff. But, you know, I think they're going to get left behind. I think the ones that end up making it is, is Barstool's um, Sportsbook, which is Penn, because, A, they have almost no ad spending, but also because they have actual brick-and-mortar casinos also. Then um, I think the MGM one and um, Caesars, as far as online sportsbook, and similar thing there, they they have such a big um, footprint as far as brick and mortar gambling uh, um, places that um, it's not just online sports gambling that they're basing their their profits off of, and then the one that's just the online sports gambling that I think will end up you know, we'll see long-term is, is FanDuel. And they don't own a media company yet, but I think you we could see them heading the same direction as Penn and look to buy a media company. But I, they have a huge partnership with um, the Pat McAfee show, which is a much smaller version, but, you know, in a similar name as Barstool. And they just have a partnership. They, um, FanDuel don't own... Pat's company at all, which I, you know, is more on, you know, Pat wants to be involved in the business dealings and stuff. But I think that's one that's, even though they don't technically own them, it's, it's pretty ex exclusive. So I think they benefit a lot from that similar to how Penn benefits um, from Barstool. So yeah, that was a long breakdown, but that's kind of just my, my breakdown on things as far as like the ad spending and the, the gambling companies, but yeah, I've been saying that for a long time that I thought DraftKings, you know, their tech, in my opinion, is by far the worst. And then they also had this ad spending thing, which is astronomically, it's it's kind of hard to dig yourself out of out of that. Yeah, I mean, DraftKings does have some stuff going for it with like NFTs and stuff, where they they are ahead of the curve. Um, their founder is very if those work. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, they do. I don't, I don't know. There's a huge market for it already. It's just a matter of what that necessarily means. Yeah, I, I don't know what we'll do with in, um, where NFTs will go, but at, at some point, there's going to be some that get cut out. Right now, there's there's so many online books that, and when I say cut out, maybe maybe not necessarily they go away, but 
at some point, I think there's going to be some acquisitions or, you know, people that fall by the wayside because there's, you know, we just named five or six big ones that people heard of. If you look, there's, there's so many more than, more than that. And it, the, there's just only, you know, only a certain market on it. The, the other problem I see with DraftKings compared to some of the other ones that's the issue is um, they have a lot of like kind of what I retail users, like just for fun users. As far as I know, um, I haven't seen anyone's, you know, any really, really big sports gamblers say that they use like DraftKings. And I think that's because DraftKings is probably not accepting the super large um, wagers. And in my opinion, you have to be able to get some, you're, they're going that in order to be successful in this industry, in that industry, you're going to have to, you know, get some of the people who are making larger wagers than $25 here, $25 there. And I don't think DraftKings has that as of right now. And I think quite possibly it may be because they won't accept um, wagers of certain size. Yeah. And I mean, they're a funny company because they've, they've come out and said the, the people who want to make money, we don't want on our, on our uh, service. So yeah. it's a little, it's well, a little odd thing to say. So Dave actually, Dave Portnoy actually said DraftKings was, you know, they were in discussions before Penn um, bought Barstool um, about maybe it being a DraftKings Barstool um, collaboration, but the, the money wasn't even close to, you know, to be in there as far as like what pin was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. It's an, it's an odd company. Yeah. Some of the decisions I just are, are kind of weird too. Like didn't they pay Dan Levitar like $50 million or some, something like that, which his his show is one of the top five biggest podcasts, I think, in sports. The issue is they paid that only for his show. So, like, when, when Penn bought Barstool, Barstool was kind of the market setters. And, um, you know, some, some of the prices that followed that are, in my opinion, are way – were way too much, like – unless he ends up starting a company or something of his own, you know, buying one podcast for 50 million, that's not named Joe Rogan is, is crazy when Penn bought the entire Barstool company for like 400 million. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely with you. It's, it's odd. Yeah. I think Pat's deal with Vandal was a hundred million damn <laughs> i'll take but, it but he has his is a he has a company so they're not as big as like barstool as far as like have multiple hundreds of employees and stuff like that but th they have multiple shows it's not you know just his sports show or whatever else that they do a lot more than than that but as far as the dan levitar i'm pretty sure it's just his like podcast that he puts up i, I don't listen to it so i don't know how often but I don't know, one podcast for 50 million that's, you know, not Joe Rogan seems pretty pr ridiculous. John, you got any take here? Um, no, I don't have uh, any take. I think you guys covered um, everything as far as, like, the online gambling stuff.
Yeah, um, Pat Baby, do you have anything else you want to discuss in customer acquisition costs? I think that was the best example you could have, you know, we could do. Because that one's real hot in the, the market right now. Yeah, I mean, there, there's other ones we can discuss, but I'm, I'll dive into more ones that are a little more churn-based and then sort of the, the lifetime value of the customer-based on future ones. Um, but yeah, right now, that's the, that's the hot one you see that's pretty crazy out there. Um, so I think, uh, I think we pretty well covered. Well, I will say that uh, DraftKings is bearish trend and it was in the top 10 most uh, traded stocks. So it had um, top 10 highest volume of the day. Also with the um, average volume of the last three months above 40 million shares traded and 44 million traded today, or 20 million, uh, higher than 20 million shares uh, traded over the last three months, but 40 million today, I'm sorry, I misspoke there, but yeah, so a lot of volume. It was an up day, uh, 7.5% change to the upside today, but it's still bearish trend. Um, yeah, so, um, yeah, they've reported earnings at the beginning of the week or maybe last week, the end of the week. And after they reported earnings, one, two, three, four, five, um, there was at least five different um, of the big, like, analysts, like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, that, like, basically cut the price target. Some of them are in, like, half. So it, it like dropped a lot from that. Um, yeah, and then also with DraftKings, um, since just since last earning, their, their um, short um, float has went up 5.5% since last earnings. And when if you look at that compared to their peers, which would be the, you know, PN and MGM and stuff like that, if you look at that, their short float compared to you know, a like companies, the average short float for um, similar companies is only three point is only like three point five percent. Let a little bit less than that, and DraftKings is five and a half percent. So they're you know the short interest is is quite a bit higher in DraftKings. Yeah, um, the, um, the short interest the volume it accounts for about on the eighteenth. Yeah, it accounts for about there's the short interest accounts for about twelve percent of all the shares in DraftKings right now. So that, hey, it's that's got quite the, a bit. Uh, it's almost got the castle pattern like we were talking about before. Yeah, the sandcastle pattern. And then I guess one more thing with the um, gambling companies, we might be we're a couple of weeks late on the news. So if you invest in this, you probably already know about it but by the end of this year i think Penn will own the rest of barstool so when they made the deal they only owned a small amount and the churning group still owned their portion by the end of the year Penn will own so that's that's one of the news there um but moving on john do you want to talk about you know how shitty the market's been going and then we'll jump into some of the news around around that which I uh yeah sure um so we're going to keep it tight and short. Um, basically, volatility at 2881 uh, on the VIX, uh, volatility index for the SPX, um, is still bullish trend. Um, I could see this thing going higher probably in, in, back to the 30s, maybe even touch 40. I look for the SP 500 to continue to go lower. It's uh, bearish trend. With the VIX bullish trend, that's not a good setup for stocks. Um, it pretty much following 
what we had talked about the last few weeks. You know, we had the sell-off, and then there's a lot of people that was attracted by that sell-off, and it boosted stocks back up, which we expected. And then it was just another, um, it was a lower high, basically. Um, a lot of people have been by, you know, it's been by the dip ever since pretty much 2000 and I guess the 2000s after the dot-com bubble uh, burst and the Fed came in. So everyone's been used to buying dips here and um, it works until it doesn't. And we got a lot of risk going on right now. I don't know why this isn't loading. I'm trying to pull it up on the screen, but yeah, S&P 500 index at 4304. Uh, it was down 1% today, year to day. Um, let's see here. Um, sorry, the, the computer's being slow here, but year to day, we're down right at 10% uh, for the year. So, real important to risk manage here at these levels. Uh, I sold my stock a few weeks back when we were on the podcast. Uh, you know, no, no, no surprise here as far as the S&P 500 and the broad market. Uh, if we move on over to the 10-year yield, uh, it's still bullish trend, but it's starting to lose momentum. So I would look for, uh, you know, we had a little bit of pullback on the yield part. So I look for bonds to be a really good play here. Currently, my positioning is gold and bonds. So that, that's been working out here the last few days. I look for it to continue to work. Um, as the Fed makes a policy error, which I know the Fed's policy error or them in increasing interest rates are pretty much priced in. What's not priced in is the economic growth slowing into them raising interest rates. So that's really the risk here, which we knew that this was the risk going out months ago when we were talking on the podcast then, that this was the potential risk that we seen could happen and it seems like it's unfolding. Uh, crude oil, I just got gas today after leaving the gym. Uh, it's uh, 3.49 here in Gastonia. So gas prices kind of getting killed at the pump here and crude oil is a bullish trend. Like I said, this isn't something I've started to short yet, but it's definitely gonna be a short play once it breaks trend. I think we're probably getting close to a to a top here at some point, but it's too too early to call. Like I said before, a uh, week before last, it could easily go to a hundred. You just don't know how far it's going to go before it rolls over with the rest of the market. And we could even see some bounces in in the overall market. But I look for them to the correlations arise and thanks to fall in both gold. Gold is bullish trend. Um, it was. Like I said a few weeks ago on the podcast, uh, this this has been the place to put your money. Uh, I mean, it's just been straight up here in the last um, almost a month now. So now we went straight up in a straight line. I wouldn't be surprised of a little bit of a pullback here below 1900, uh, maybe 18... 50s or or so not much of a pullback expected here but you know i kind of trade around my core positions like gold is i'll probably sell a little bit and if we get a pullback i'll, I'll immediately buy back in but i do 
risk manage all my positions, even the ones that I think are going to be winners, because no one knows the future. And the thing that helps is not trying to predict when things are going to happen, but just having good risk management and be able to have some kind of historical context around how to manage your your positions is so important. Bitcoin bull, uh, bearish trend, um, th this thing has gotten killed. We had a bounce back in it like we did in equities, but it's started to sell back off. I had some volatility over the over the last few days through the weekend and the holiday. Um, I, I don't know where Bitcoin could go. It's done came off of its highs pretty hard, but its correlation like we talked about before is pretty pretty in step with the overall market. And I look for, if volatility continues, I, I would say most equities are going to be pretty correlated um, together as the overall market. So diversifying here in any kind of risk asset, you're really just all correlated. You're correlated with the overall market. You need to look at other opportunities like bond, like gold, like maybe even some short plays like oil potentially in the future. It's not all about stocks. And, you know, people think that they diversify by just the S&P 500, but that's all equities. You know, you'll see me trading anything from corn to soybeans to gold, silver, uh, Bitcoin a little bit um as as far as uh, some of the futures products that they've came out with here in the last year but it's it's good to diversify across asset classes not just stocks you know everyone likes the hot new stock or the hot play or this and that and um you know there's a lot of hype and people are attracted to the sexy plays but it's not always about sexy plays sometimes it's about risk management and diversification and uh, that's what I'm going to continue to preach here on the podcast. And uh, it's the boring stuff, but it's how you protect your portfolio. Right now, I'm a half a percent down from all-time highs um, after last year's 25% gain. Now, the S&P 500 outperformed me last year, but now I'm definitely outperforming it with it down 9% more than I am. So, yeah, I might not make as much money when times are good, but I'm definitely not losing money when times are bad. And that's not always going to be the case, but definitely having diversification and risk management uh, around whatever that you're, you know, oh, this is a sure thing. Well, nothing's really sure, and uh, the future is uncertain, so it's good to uh, manage risk that way. Uh, it, I don't think, you know, having a 50% drawdown is never a good thing, never a good thing, and I know a lot of people say, well, I'm in for the long term. I mean... I get that you're in for the long term, but that's not even guaranteed either. Um, I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but um, that's basically the breakdown of the market. Yeah, so John made some good points there. Um, you're investing in companies, um, commodities, you know, whatever you, you're investing in. Um, Nothing is, there's nothing sure of, about this. The only sure thing would be to save your money. And that's not sure because that's not a sure thing because we have inflation. So just know when you're, you're investing, trading, doing whatever, um, nothing's a sure thing. John talking about everything showing the market's going to drop. Not a sure thing, but his calculations, his back testing, everything signaled to him that that's what we are doing right now in the short term. That baby has 
tons of um, stocks um, in certain companies for the long term um, because all his analysis on financials and things like that would signal that, hey, this may be a good play, you know, for the long term. Again, still not a sure thing. You know, the market could, you may have, let's say, 30 years till retirement and, you know, we're down right now, but say for the next 20 years, the market could go up and then the last five years, right before you retire, we could have a huge sell-off. So again, everything, nothing's a short thing. So it's important to be diversified and to monitor what's going on in stocks, um, your shares, your commodities, whatever it is, as well as what's going on um, in the world, which, you know, we were already having a drop and then some of the world items are definitely not helping it. Um, but, you know, that's really the, the, the big topics I think of this week um, is this, uh, the Russia, um, Russia invading um, the Ukraine. Um, so we're going to discuss that here, but we'll, and, and you know, we, we're, we're getting into that a whole, whole lot. I do want to say, um, you know, a lot of people will point to that as the reason the market's going down. And that may be so. I don't know. Um, what I will say is that before this started happening, I was already positioning for the slowdown. I mean, you can go back last, I think, four podcasts. Like, I think five weeks ago is when I started to become bearish. Um, may, well, I don't know. It might have been longer than that. I know we only do this once a week. But anyways, um, you know, when things break down, um usually someone knows more than you do and that's reflected in the price now i has i've historically have just been macro investing and in you know i there's some technical analysis that has aided with the macro stuff so you kind of use it in injunction now before I got into technical analysis, it it's basically like astrology, right? And and I will say most of it's bullshit. But there's one good thing about technical analysis is that a lot of people say, okay, if I get in here, I'm getting out there, and if I if it if it goes to here, that's where I'm getting out. So they build in risk management within the technical analysis, and the technical analysis itself might not have an edge per se, but at least it's giving you places where you're going to say, I'm wrong here, and this is where I'm going to be right, and having discipline to stick to that sometimes could be the edge more than it is drawing patterns on a chart. And we joked about the sandcastle pattern, you know, it, that's how ridiculous technical analysis can be. But one thing I will say is if you can come up with um, – there's many ways to do it, but come up with some kind of trend model, whether that's price action or some kind of indicator or something, come up with some kind of trend model and that'll help you a lot uh, just as an overlay to whatever else you're doing. Like I'm mainly um, macro, um, but I do have some technical uh, analysis that I join in with that. And the technical analysis side of it is more, and I say technical analysis, and, and people usually just refer that as just drawing stuff, but it can be looking at price over different time time frames as far as just, you know, when when stocks um, 
or any investment goes down, usually the volatility goes up. So if something goes below whatever you define as trend, usually volatility is increasing. And so when, when I do back tests of like trend models, typically, you know, as things have went up over time in general, the, the thing that is funny is you could buy below trend or you could buy above trend and you both and both people can make money. The difference is, is the people that buy when things break trend, uh, they have higher volatility in their portfolio than people that buy on momentum. So and the people that buy or try to catch falling knives, they usually have higher probabilities because they're they're willing to allow their position to breathe more. Um, but if you are in momentum trading, usually if you're wrong, you're going to cut your lo loser very short and you're going to have a low uh, percent as far as like win rate. But your wins are going to be much bigger than your than your losses. It's just like if you buy a call or sell a call. Um, if you sell a call, your volatility or sell a put, for example, your volatility is going to be better, uh, greater, but you're going to win more often. But if you buy a put, you're not going to win as much. Uh, but when you do win, you're going to win really big. Um, so the thing with trends for me is when things break my trend line, that tells me, okay, the volatility is probably going to be more than, than the, than the return. And so for me, I'm all about trying to manage risk to where uh, I keep my volatility down because if nothing is, or hardly anything is guaranteed except for death, really. So if nothing's guaranteed, then if I'm having all that volatility, it doesn't mean that it's always going to come back. I could have volatility and it just stay down and not come back. So I'm more of like on the momentum side where I can buy something and if I'm wrong, I just cut it short. And then if I'm right and it goes on, it, there's more upside potential than there is downside with a lot less volatility. And then that's not saying that you don't all, I mean, you don't, you know, there's some things that are cheap plays. I think back when coronavirus happened, uh, you could have sold puts in Hertz for zero risk, basically. Uh, and there is some opportunities when buy, buying things cheap if you're very tactical about it. Um, it's not one, one size fits all, all the time, but I will say that just having some kind of trend model, that's a very basic trend model. It does, and, and that can be the extent of your technical analysis. I do a little bit more than that. Um, but just doing that alone can help minimize your volatility of a portfolio pretty drastically. And so when Hertz went down, that would be an exception to the rule because you could sell a put, collect 300 dollars and the price of the stock was at three or something crazy i don't know if you remember this chris yeah yeah because because you you actually pointed it out to us and it was basically i mean i think you might have lost like two or three cents plus a couple bucks in commissions or something on the trade but i think it was AM, i think it was amc i forgot i forget who we were talking to i think it was the um Katrina, the one, the lady that came on the show talked about technical analysis. I think I pointed out. Was it to her, her or was it the other lady no, from California? No, no, it was the, it was the chart, um, the charts lady. Um, okay. Because I pointed it out to her at a time. I, I don't, I forget what it was. Um, basically, the volatility, the IVR of AMC at the time was so high, you could literally 
when it was like two dollars or something, you could basically buy or I, I forget what it was. I think sell it was like sell a um, put. Put yeah. Yeah, you sell a put for almost um, no risk because if you if um, you were the wrong, amount of premium it, that yeah, you collected would well, you cover collected, almost all your downside. Yeah, you collected a bunch of premium, but also if you were wrong and the you know the stock's at two dollars or whatever two fifty. You know, buying, um, having to get the shares or whatever at at two fifty, um, that's such a that was such a low number that even though the movie theaters were dead, at at some point the you know the fact that at some point AMC stock was going to go above two dollars, um, you know, because it got beaten down so much solely due to coronavirus. Um, at some point when it went up, you would just be able to sell the shares basically for a profit. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's definitely places in time where you want to take the risk and the volatility because the reward at that point becomes worth it. You know, in 2020, we've seen a lot of plays like Penn, for example, which Chris played, right? There was there was very little downside to upside, even though that was, was the high volatility. I was buying that whether Corona happened or not. Well, yeah, but I mean, but when it went to four dollars, it's a lot easier to pull the trigger. When, than it, when it went to four dollars, if that didn't happen to be the same month I bought a house, I may be rich right now. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because we were about to do a bunch of work on the house that costed quite a bit of money, and if I did not have to do that at the time, there's a good chance that I would have had you know, 10, 15, 20 grand of pen stock. At, oh yeah, for sure. And, and I remember like, like the, this is why I bring these, these up. Cause I remember you telling me how, you know, how much of a bot was. And, you know, when you have, when you have something that you like fundamentally or, you know, whatever it is, and it trades at such a discount, even if it is below trend, so to speak, the downside still at some at some point becomes attractive. Well, that's uh, the now, pro- yeah, that's that's the real problem with the coronavirus and every everyone got into their you know being worried about their finances at a time where you know most things made zero sense. So at the very beginning of the coronavirus, if you were in the market, there was certain companies and industries where you could literally bought with almost no risk that were just solely getting beat down because of COVID. You know, you could have bought, that's when the correlations go to name, yeah, name airline stock, insert airline stock into the blank. I mean, you would have doubled your money on all of them. No problem. Yeah. With Uh, pretty much no risk. Yeah. I mean, and so at some point it is attractive, but the thing is too, is how cheap is cheap. And I, I, I made a tweet, earlier today, I think it was that, you know, things can get cheap and then it can get even cheaper and it's, it's hard to catch falling knives. But in those were a couple examples that Chris had come up with. One of the examples, uh, while we were doing this show was, uh, MRO marathon, uh, marathon traded down to like $3 when ne- when oil went negative. And of course, we're not going to quit using oil when it went negative. It was just a a very specific, you know, a chain of events that happened. So I bought a bunch of marathon and it like three, two or three X. Um, 
I think at 2x and I got out and it went to like 3 or 4x, but uh, that's also a problem too is taking winners too early. <laughs> but um, but no, I mean, the point of all of this is that there's no definite rules, but you do need to have some kind of plan and risk manager portfolio because I know a lot of people <sighs> – there's a lot of high beta names, the same high beta names that everyone goes to. And you're in times where things are good, you're going to outperform the market. But when things are bad, you're going to underperform mar the market. And I, I feel like, you know, a lot of people in when things are good, you know, you can ride that wave. But when things start to turn, you need to implement some kind of risk management to where you get to keep all those profits and not, you know, go back down the slope with everything else. Because if you're trading or investing and, in, you know, in my mind, if you're going to do this, you, you need to try to outperform the markets, like the broad market, like, like you got to pick your index, S&P, Dow, NASDAQ, Russell, like what, what is your index that you're going to try to outperform? Or what is, you know, or or are you just investing in commodities? What commodity um, pool are you going to look at? You need to have some kind of benchmark. And if you can't beat the benchmark, then it's almost like, well, why waste your time doing this if you're not even going to, you know, you're not even going to perform the benchmark. Um, now, that being said, you can go years without outperforming the benchmark. But there has to be some kind of edge, whether that be long term uh, or even like little short term trades that help you outperform the market. Like last year, I didn't outperform the market, but I know my strategy over or I know my strategy statistically and since I've been trading that I'm going to do well in downturns. That That's usually how it's been for me is I'm able to risk manage my portfolio. So. I'm not having to follow the market down. Now I might not follow it all the way up, but I'm not going to follow it down. And and the benefit that I get is at least my time put into trading is I'm reducing the volatility of my portfolio with still getting the market returns. So if I can do that and maybe I don't make more than the market, but maybe I'm still reducing my volatility and still trading right with the market, well, then I've at least helped my portfolio in some way uh, that, that's going to benefit all the time that I spend at this. Yeah, I think the, the real point here is, you know, like we, I guess, preach on here all the time without giving any very specific recommendations because we all three do things, I would say, pretty differently from each other um, is to have some sort of, A, have some sort of goal in mind whether that's have like broad overarching goals as well as having a goal for each position or trade, whatever you get into, but, you know, having some sort of goal and some sort of strategy on how to get there, you know, looking at things, don't just randomly, you know, buy something because people's talking about it on Twitter or this, that, and the other, um, you know, have some sort of idea uh, about things. And if something, you know, if something doesn't click for you, then, you know, why buy? There's, there's plenty of businesses that, you know, people like a lot of, but when I think of, I don't see, you know, maybe, and, and a lot of it's, um, you know, circumstance where you live at, or, you know, 
I guess, what kind of wealth class you're in. There's certain things where you're not going to be able to see, you know, the end goal of, of certain things or connect with, you know, certain companies. And that doesn't mean that company will not do well. It doesn't mean the company will um, do well. It doesn't mean that it won't do well. It just means you, you don't click with it. But why invest in something that, you know, you don't click with? Now, obviously, if you're trading, it's, it's a little bit different. You're going to, you don't really have any, that, that really doesn't matter as much. Um, and then also from that, I, I just want to point out, know that you know people's been doing you know investing for hundreds like a hundred years now or so really even before that it just may not be you know the same as you go buy stocks in the company but um people's invested for a long time there's tons of people who do it tons of different ways um and pretty much all the ways have have worked if you have done it correctly, whether that's technical analysis or whether that's, you know, looking at um, financials or, you know, doing macro investing, looking at fundamentals, all of those, there's somebody who has been successful at all of those. So when someone says they do something differently than what you do, that doesn't mean that, oh, they're not going to do well or because they're not doing technical analysis or vice versa. Um, because if you think about it, a lot of those things actually go together. So if you do technical analysis, you're looking at a chart on how, you know, how things are moving and that sort of thing. Well, something's making those, you know, something's making those line move. They just don't do random, you know, random movements. So there's something else attached to that. That's where fundamentals and the financials and stuff come in. That's where news on a, you know, sometimes news can make things move. So really everything in the market is actually connected to each other. So if you look at things, you know, whichever side you want to look at, if you look at it, you know, the correct way, then, you know, you're probably going to do all right because they are actually all, all connected. Um, so that's really the point there. Um, again, we won't jump into Russia too much. Um, the one point I want to make from that is a lot of people's freaking out over Russia. Um, there's, I guess I have two points. Um, and I don't really know too much about how markets have reacted when international crisis has happened, especially, um, you know, with companies we don't really do business with. So that's that's the first point is a lot of people's real worried about it. We don't do business much business with Russia at all because it's Russia. So Russia's doings don't concern me too much unless they start messing with the company that we do substantial amount of business with. Now China is China, and we do, um, but we do a lot of business with China. So say it was the opposite, China was doing something, it would worry me if China was doing something because we have a lot of ties financially to China. We have almost no financial ties to Russia. So that, that's one point, the reason I wouldn't be too worried about it. The second one is, again, we're talking about, um, talking about Russia. So, you know, hopefully you've had some sort of history classes in your lifetime if you're listening to this. Um, Russia tends to do whatever the hell Russia wants to do. So this is not the first, nor will this be the last time that Russia invades somebody. This is it's kind of par for the course. So the market may take a hit 
you know, a little bit due to this or whatever um, in the short term, long term, I don't see it having any effects. And then kind of what John said before, the market was already going down way before this became anything. Um, John mentioned the 10% down. That's an actual a landmark number. That means we're in a actual correction. Um, that's like the, the value uh, more than 10%, but less than 20 is considered a market correction. So now we're actually in a correction. I know people have been saying that a lot before, but we wasn't, but we are now in a correction. Um, but the, the one thing, I guess, and again, I don't know too much about how this ties in, but the one thing about the Russia deal, I was reading an article today, John, and it was about oil because oil, like you said, is out. It's crazy. I, me and my wife got gas the other day at Kroger's with Kroger points and it was like 80, 90 bucks to fill up two vehicles. So it's really, really high. Um, price per barrel is well over $90, probably going higher. Um, but Bank of America, I don't know who wrote the article, but it was Bank of America talking about it. They, and I, again, I, I don't know, maybe you know, um, since you're, you know, you know a little bit more about the gas industry and oil than I do, but um, they were basically saying that they, if the, this Ukraine thing gets worse, they could see um, oil, you know, rising another five to $20 is what they estimate. So that's a pretty big range, but another five to $20 per barrel by, you know, mid this year, basically based on if this this worsens. And again, I don't know really the attachment of why oil to Ukraine would get much worse. And then they also said on the, the back end of that, if it de-escalates here in the short term, we could see a drop of two to $4 per barrel. Uh, but yeah, they estimated that up to $20 per barrel, you know, if this worsens and, um, you know, by mid, also, along with, I guess, by mid-2022, they estimated the demand would be, I think, 3.6 million barrels a day or something. So that that was part of the calculations, just the demand. Um, and then, you know, with that, um, I think they calculated that in order to keep the global oil market in the balance, then ideally the price per barrel needs to drop to about 60 to $80 per barrel, which we're way above now. So um, yeah, I, you probably don't know any, anything about that, but that was just something I read as far as how it had to relate to the Russia thing was that um, they were talking about if this increases, we could see another pretty big jump short term in oil, but then at some point we'll, it really has to drop back down otherwise the global market will be very, I mean, it'll be very bad. Yeah, and it's also one of, oh, I don't know if you, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. It's also one of the, um, you know, big drivers of inflation. And with oil staying higher, uh, this will help the Fed continue to make their policy mistake. Um, it'll, you know, sh help show inflation and, you know, with higher gas prices, transportation costs, all that stuff, yada, 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 so to speak. But it all gets factored in, and, and uh, it's definitely strange uh, how it's happening this time. It, but it just shows you that there can be a lot more downside in the S&P 500 since the S&P 500 is going down and oil hasn't started yet. So, I think mainly what we want to know is, 
John, when you say it's time to short oil, you be sure to let everyone know. Now, no recommendations, but let's wink, wink, be sure to let everyone know. <laughs> Mainly myself when okay, it's time it's... to short oil, because at some point, it's, this, is, this is one of them things where maybe not directly right at this moment where it's at now, you know, because it still appears to be going up and it looks like by, you know, if you listen, read or listen to a bunch of different people, it looks like we're still going up a little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, it's still, we're probably going to, we're probably going to go over a hundred per barrel at some point it's going down. So this is one of them ones where you you're patient on it. At some point there's going to be some money here and, Again, nothing's ever a guarantee, but some things are more likely than others. I would assume that with as much as it's risen, um, at some point, you know, it's it's going to go down. Because if you, like we were talking, if you think about two years ago, we were negative. So, yeah, I mean, oil definitely bounces around really well. It's a it's it was half of my profits last year was actually from oil, not even the stock stocks uh, specifically is from oil. So it's definitely something I keep my eye on constantly. It's one of the biggest macro factors as far as macroeconomics go. So once this thing breaks trend, then, you know, trends right around 85 right now. Once it breaks trend, then you pretty much just got to sell all the bounces. Um, and you also have to, you also have to manage it. Now, like, like Chris said, this isn't recommendations or anything, but you know, I, I say this over and over risk managing your wins. Cause with that higher vol, you're going to get opportunities to get out with profits. Don't be greedy, take the profits. Uh, but it's another probability thing where, okay, it broke trend you're probably going to see a higher low, I mean, a lower high. So once it bounces, you'll have some shorting opportunities you can get in. But shorting, short selling is one of the hardest things to do. Uh, it's very hard to make money at. Um, and to be successful at it, you cannot ride shorts like you can longs because things usually increase with price over time. You don't have that, uh, that market drift in your favor. So when you short sell, you have to, you almost have to trade it uh, more than anything. It's really hard to ride stuff. Uh, so once you get in, you, you make a little bit, you take some profit and you have to really manage it. But I will be on this thing and it'll be the first thing we talk about when it does break trend on the podcast. Don't worry. Yeah, maybe that's something we should get in. I know we've talked about it in the past, but not this episode because we, we've done went pretty long, but um there's a good point john made there as far as shorting stuff now i don't short things as far as you know borrowing shares and that sort of stuff but you can short things by you know options futures whatever else that's it's where you're not borrowing shares but the point he made there which is a valid one and it kind of goes with everything that most people fundamentally know about the market is over time the market tends to increase over time what the period is. And, you know, we have huge sell-offs and we, we dip and go up, but over time we, we tend to have that drift upwards. 
Um, so, you know, when you're long, there's a lot of opportunity as far as, you know, things coming back and, and that sort of thing solely because the market does tend to go up more over time. But that also puts more risk on the short side, which is why if you do anything, if you're playing that side of it, you know, you have to be able to, you have to take profits because at some point, you know, you're going, you're going to be going the opposite direction in a way where it may never come back to that, that point again. So I don't know, something to keep in mind. Fat Baby, do you have any comments? You, you've had a quiet show today. No, no, just uh, same back, listening to everything. And, you know, I, I, I disagree with some of the stuff John was saying on the, you got to be hedging in and out essentially. And because to me, the answer is just keep some cash and that's, that's your hedge and then just buy and hold. Um, I'm no good at time in the market. So uh, to me, the answer is just hopefully find the right companies and then never sell them. Yeah. And I think that was, uh, that's kind of the another thing to take away is John is very much an active trader, not an investor. So there he's going to have some opinions, you know, there that you have to know up front that he's a trader. So some of his opinions um, may be more towards the trading rather than investing. So that was kind of the point I was trying to make earlier is that, you know, there's a bunch of different styles and a bunch of different goals that um, you have to know which, what's your goal and, you know, do things based on, on that. There's the majority of the people don't jump in and out, I would say. Yeah, I would say that I would say the main things is, for that like covers pretty much everyone is have a plan have some kind of risk management in place uh, regardless of what you're doing you know it's probably good for most people to set out what your max entry position size is uh, you know, know, know how much of something you're willing to buy in percentages of your portfolio, have some kind of risk management plan, have uh, diversification. You know, the main, the main things that, you know, everyone uh, says is usually good across the board of all styles. Um, and try to get maybe some kind of statistical backdrop of, of, of your style really know your plan in and out just don't go in and yolo uh, your whole entire portfolio and i mean and i know people that have separate accounts i'm not really into the having a yolo account and different from my my main yeah, portfolio if, if you think you need a yolo account learn how to gamble in sports yeah exactly so i mean i would think the the main things pretty much cover everybody if you're a trader or investor or anything, uh, have a plan, define what your position sizes are going to be, like your initial position sizes, uh, plan how you're going to build your positions over time. Just just know these things going in before you just start buying stuff randomly. Yeah. And fat baby, you, you do that too. You do the risk management thing too just in a different way because you've reanalyzed. I mean, if, if something fundamentally changed with the company, your opinion may change or it may not. So you, you still look at that too. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. I mean, it. risk management is very important. And then just to me, the way 
I manage my risk a lot is I do have a strong cash flow coming in. So then I'm able to re-divert those funds into whatever. So if I start to question a business and start to worry about my, my allocation being too big, um, I give them plenty of time to correct it. I stop buying more. I start slowly diluting my shares in that by buying other things. But we all got, it, it's a lot harder if you don't have that cash flow coming in and you're dealing with a set account. Um, I, I might handle things differently if that was the case for me. Yep. Well, pr pretty good show, boys. Um, any closing thoughts outside of the market before we get out of here? No, no, I'm uh, no, nothing from me, but uh, overall, hopefully, hopefully things start to turn around. Hopefully this Russia thing isn't anything too crazy, but I don't know. I'm bullish. Yeah. Not to be a political show. If, if you're out there rooting for something bad to happen, so you can say that Biden screwed something up. I mean, that's kind of counterproductive, whether you like Biden or not, he's, he's kind of the president and everyone has to live with it. So to not be political, um, yeah, not, and that's something not trying else to be political. Too. It's just it, like let's. How about let's not hope that um, America fails because you you want to be able to say you you told you so. To yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and you know, the 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 main the I think the main thing, like you just said, is there's so many people that have these ideas that oh, gas prices are because of Biden or, or, or we won't even say Biden specifically. We'll just say insert presidential candidate or presidential, uh, he, you know, person here. Um, you know, there's, there's so many more factors than just what one person can do. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter what party you are, but notice how, when I talk about the stock market, I'm not talking about geopolitical risks. I'm not talking about uh, what our president is doing. Those things, and I don't, I don't even look at the news for the most part. If it wasn't for doing this show or just when I log on to some of my accounts, some of them have like news feeds on the side, or when you're watching other content uh, for, you know, just, uh, just for fun, you know, you like the watch uh, some of the financial media stuff not that you even use their advice or anything but just kind of as entertainment um yeah i watch most of it because we do this show and you gotta yeah and, some of and those what, what's what's great you know what's what's important is just following your strategy and not worrying about the headlines of the news i mean for me as you as if whoever's listening has been a follower of this podcast for a while i don't listen to the news or i mean other than for this podcast i try not the nothing's political it's all what is the overall economy's doing and what does uh some of the studies and back tests i've done as far as technical analysis look like in risk management so focus on what you're doing not worry so much about what the headlines are or what the fear is a lot of times you can watch those things and it'll make you do something that you wouldn't have done and you know stay disciplined and don't deviate from the plan yeah i think uh, if you're a new listener to this show then um yeah that's a good thing to notice you know when we're saying things about the market it politics really aren't involved now if you listen to the show for long enough i don't think it's i don't think it would be very hard to determine 
where at least um, I don't think it'd be very hard to determine where all th- where we all stand politically if you listen <laughs> to the show. But um, most of, like when John's talking about the market analysis, none of that has anything to do with political. If we talk about news or whatever, that's it's kind of just it's kind of just what it is at the time because you know. I guess we all have, you know, whatever side we vote on and what reasons, but for the most part, I would say that none of us three are even very political at all besides outside of like elections and, you know, talking about news, I would say I have almost zero conversations about politics in in my life. So, um, so yeah, just know that now we will make political jokes every once in a while because they're funny and they need to be made. Um, I guess the last, the last thing that we have to talk about, he about got off scotch-free because I almost forgot with all this other discussion, um, this, you know, very, you know, fun and, you know, hype discussion. John, have you ever ate a Cheeto? A Cheeto? Yeah, a Cheeto. You've ever had a Cheeto? Yeah. What, what? What does a Cheeto taste like for the, the people out there listening who may have not had a Cheeto? I feel like I'm walking into a trap here. You're not. You're not walking into a trap. What what is a, a trap. What does a Cheeto taste like? I'm not I'm not participating in this. No, 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 no. This is not a trap. This is the proof of point that um one other member of the show, um, taste buds may need checked out. <laughs> um I mean, it's um a, a cheesy ball of heaven. It tastes like cheese, right? Just yeah. Would you have you ever had a Cheeto and thought, hmm, this reminds me of a pickle? <laughs> um, no, I mean, I feel like this is a trap, but no, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> Fat Baby Funs um, swears that Cheetos and pickles taste the same. Okay. No, I, I didn't say taste the same. I said <laughs> Cheetos have a pickle flavor to them. Again, have you ever had a Cheeto and thought, hmm, there's a little bit of pickle in there? <laughs> Listen, hey, just, this is like so left field catching me off guard right now. <laughs> well, this this was a comment that I was I was scrolling on my personal Twitter and you know, which is mostly sports, and I don't he didn't even tweet about it himself. I saw a comment. I don't know how this popped up, but there was a comment to someone else regarding Cheetos tasting like pickles. No, I've, I've never ate a Cheeto and thought I was eating a pickle. So if, if everyone's keeping track, um, Fat Baby Funs has about three strikes food-wise on his record. <laughs> One, we got pomegranate. His favorite Thanksgiving dish is squash and pomegranate seeds or, or it's whatever. delicious it's delicious which, which i'm which i'm one willing, home run i am willing to try i just have not had it, it's, it's just an odd answer for favorite thanksgiving dish when there's sweet potato casserole and things like that out there <laughs> um so it's just a weird answer i'm willing to try it i've never had it secondly we were talking about pizza places last um week and fat baby fun's favorite pizza place is one that you have to go get it and then cook it yourself. <laughs> so take and bake, take and bake. And now um, Cheetos or pickles. <laughs> you don't even know that. I've, I, I'll, I'll give you a hot take of food every week, man. All right. I've got, 
new segment every, every week we're going to get fat baby's funds hot take <laughs> Listen, on this is, i just gotta sprinkle them in this randomly, is golden though. boys i tell you what <laughs> yeah well if you're listening to the show be sure to follow us at swinging it um check out fat baby funds um blog you go to his twitter at fat baby funds um there's a link there um he'll post some good tidbits about investing and certain companies um on there and um, yeah, be sure to follow us and we'll talk to you guys next week. See ya.